Are we okay forcing people to do things they don't want to do? It's the founding ideas that make our country great. Caesar was garbage, and so are today's bureaucrats. You're listening to Self-Evident and Forgotten. Here are your hosts, Stanton, Christie, and Cody. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Self-Evident and Forgotten. We are your trio of triumph, Stanton, Christie, and Cody. Today's episode is your in the news for the month of October. We have the Taliban government operating a rehab facility, Facebook's fiasco of truth, the Taiwan status, and gun-fumbling actors. It's been a fun-filled October. Happy Halloween if we don't hear from you then. Uh, and as always, we've got our random question of the episode. Christine Cody, what is your favorite book? Oh... Mm. That is an insanely difficult question. I'll, I'll help you out. We'll go fiction. Okay. Hmm. Well, mine is Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. This, I'm not surprised. It's not I, the it's not the answer I was expecting, but I'm not surprised. That book is just perfect. It is uh, it is fantastic in every way, and uh, the only thing more perfect than the book is the imperfection of of its author in his his beautiful imperfect ways thanks for all the fish <laughs> that's the only thing i remember from that day. I, I enjoy the intro to the last edition where he decided he says because it was a radio show it was a book it was you know it was originally a trilogy and now it's a trilogy of five parts uh and uh in the last edition he says something to the effect of you know, in this last edition, I'll finally uh set the record straight across these mini versions or if nothing else set it firmly crooked <laughs> nice i like that that's solid chris say about yourself okay i think i would have to go with um it's also a series but a different kind of series um the authors are brock and Bodie taney they're like a husband and wife couple one does the historical research the husband and then the wife does most of the writing and so it's called the zion covenant series but it is set in europe during world war ii when people were like rescuing jews from the nazis and like, there's, oh goodness, I think at least five books in it. And it's, one is like in Czechoslovakia, one is in Austria. And so it's different scenarios. My favorite is probably Vienna Prelude. Uh, it's super awesome in a lot of ways. Wow. Okay. We, historical fiction. I like it. It's that's my sounds, favorite. That sounds really neat. Yeah. Is it like really a saucy neat. romance novel too? Uh-huh. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's no like problem. elements of a romance story for sure. But it is very, uh, very history based and like adventure rescuing people. That's Interesting. Solid. That's solid. Man, I asked this question. I didn't actually have an answer for it. Um, man, I, I mean, I there are a lot of series that you know you grow up uh, uh, reading. You no, know, plenty of science fiction fans like the Pendragon series. The, I'm obviously Harry Potter. Uh, Cirque du Soleil was uh, sorry. Cirque du Freak was my first series. That was the first thing I read when I was a little kid as a series. My probably my favorite standalone book is um by not is it Patterson? I can't remember. It's called Contest. It's about um this this basically 
these aliens kidnap a bunch of people from across the galaxy and they have a contest to the death, right? It's like a gladiatorial games to the death. Humans aren't aware of it, although there are stories of it in our mythology. And this one happens to take place on Earth in like the modern times in the New York Public Library. It's wickedly weird and cool and fun. I've read it, I don't know how many times. And it's just cheap, cheap fiction fun. I love it to death. But as a standalone book, that's probably my favorite. I could name probably a bunch of other series like, you know, Asimov's Foundation or Dune that came out as a movie. Got to see that. That was a lot of fun. So, yeah. That's, cool. that's awesome. Yeah. I think the best series that was made into a movie is Hunger Games, which I'm sure neither of you would agree with me. But I, 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 I swear that those books were written to be adapted into movies. Weren't I think, they, I think, I feel like it was. She did. That was a really good adaptation. Mm-hmm. I think it was pretty solid. I never read the books. So no, that's horrible. I don't have a good position on the adaptation truth. It's fun. <laughs> it's it's very much a tear down the government kind of. Uh-huh. I'm all about yes, that. Well, I mean, I watched the movies. Yeah, oh, they were fun. I'm all about it, man. I'm all about it. Okay, so we got Hunger Games. Hunger Games have tyrants. Tyrants make autocrats, and that starts our ABCs of the month. Well, we'll go straight I on like into it. it. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Finally had one. <laughs> our ABCs in the month. We've got our aspiring autocrats, those terrible politicians and rulers that you just love to hate. And I think we'll actually start with the Taliban. We've, we, we're familiar with the Taliban. You know, we've only had a war with them for about 20 years. So let's, uh, let's see where, we, where we're at. I was reading this article that the Taliban are beginning to crack down on drug addiction and drug use in Afghanistan, and that they are violently forcing addicts and users into rehab to curb the opium epidemic that's happening in that country. Would any of you care to guess why I find that just the most ironic, hysterical thing on the face of the earth? Oh, oh, I got I got this one. Cody, take, young man in the back. I'll take what funded the Taliban for $100, Alex. <laughs> For those of you who haven't caught on, the Taliban were able to fund the entire resistance to American occupation from opium fields. They sold drugs to finance their guerrilla warfare against the United States. And now that they are the government, they're now saying, yeah, this isn't good. We're going to force people to rehab. it's, It's their war on drugs from their drugs with funding war. I don't know. Right. How do you make that work? No, I mean, I don't think they can make it work because to your point, they practically created the industry that launched these addicts into becoming addicts. And in many cases, forced villagers and entire villages to become drug epicenters uh, in order for them to be funded, all these like so much force. And then they come in and instead of actually ending the industry, like that would be a real war on drugs. If, I mean, if that's really your goal, you would at least attempt to curb the industry when instead they're punishing the people who, you know, became addicted to the industry they created. So it's just, it's just backwards. And in my view, just a show put on, like these people make our regime look bad. Let's get rid of them. Let's, let's basically kill them. I mean, they're going to end up killing a lot of them. What, what amazes me, and uh, have any of you read Murray Rothbard's um, Anatomy of the State? No. Yes. So, Chrissy, this, it'll probably, it, it's very much, no, Murray Rothbard is the granddaddy of American anarchism, anarcho-capitalism. So, do you so why he, I have so, not read it? 
Yeah. Uh, no, yeah. No, most people have not. Murray Rothbard is a weird duck. Most people have probably not read him. But uh, it's a very short, like it's like a 30, 60 page pamphlet, pretty much. Um, and he basically says that the government is really nothing more than just a really organized gang. What would distinguish the government from, say, the mafia, right? Like, uh, hey, like, like, wow. I mean, this is this is me. This is me coming out here. Like, his, <laughs> and and Chrissy, I, I want you to hear because because my point my point with this, the Taliban coming in and outlawing drugs after you know selling drugs as right effectively a really militarized gang. That's what the Taliban was. Now that now they're the government. Mm-hmm. Governments don't change. They just take on a different shape. It's the same candy bar, just in a different wrapper. That, that's kind of how I look at, at governments, right? Because how you look I, at the Taliban government or all governments? Uh, <laughs> or you're not willing to admit it. It's all just a matter of, it's, it's, a, it's a matter of, you know, how much chocolate you have in the candy bar. The candy bar is just still going to be the same. I don't know. My metaphor is starting to break down here. My Starting? Point, Hey, I mean, you're, t- I mean, like if you're talking about like the Taliban being the same from before they were like when they were in power to the, when they were out of power to when they were in power. And you're saying like the Taliban are consistent, but now they're changing position. Maybe. No. It, what, are, you, what are you talking about? Like the prior Afghan government that fled when we left and then the Taliban are now. No, the same. no what I'm, I'm talking, I'm talking more broadly on the fact that, you know, Murray Rothbard called governments really sophisticated gangs, really sophisticated yeah. mafias. And the Taliban, you know, prior to being the Afghan government, was a militarized gang. They they terrorized people. They forced them to comply with their protection. They they sold drugs. I mean, I can't figure out a more commonality with, with governments. Keeping and, with the Jeopardy theme, I'll take three things the United States has done, Alex, for $100. Go for it. Like, I mean, yeah, the Rothbard's point essentially is that they're, yes, government is just an armed gang under this guise of legitimacy. And I'm using air quotes, which is how Rothbard refers to it. So essentially what they're saying is like, look, the United States government, if it wasn't recognized as our world government, does the same things as an armed gang does. It uses force to exert its means. It takes goods from its individuals. It redistributes those goods as it sees fit. And all is to the benefit of the higher ups. And so it's this like analysis of, of government structure. Really not sure where you're going with this one on the what Taliban. I, what, I, what I'm getting at and what I, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to elicit a response from Christy is that <laughs> we, you know, we, we, we look at the United States government as legitimate, has the backing of the constitution, democratic support. And so we don't, it's hard to see how is the U S government any different from a mafia. The reason I like the Taliban as example is that they we literally they literally were an armed gang and now they're the government. And what has really changed of the Taliban? Not much. And no, yet now they're wrong. now they're the government. Right. What is it about the government that's different from the gang? Mm-hmm. I I'm I'm bringing it up so that we can talk about. Yeah, now they have millions in um, American weapons and uh, vehicles. That's about right. all the they had thousands. Oh, they had thousands of it. Now they have millions of it. So it's not uh-huh. a matter of it's not a change of kind. It's a change of degree. Right. No, I agree with you on the Taliban. And there's other examples in the world where that's absolutely true. Uh, I would definitely not apply it to all governments because I think the very premise upon which the government is based 
is what makes it like a gang or not like a gang. I mean, I, I get that maybe oversimplistic, but when you're saying the Taliban and most of the Afghan people do not want the Taliban to control them. I mean, you see the, the very few videos that make their way out of that country showing like the women athletes who are terrified and hiding and being hunted down and, and Christians and other like minorities who you barely hear stories, but the ones you do are devastating. Like they are a gang because no one wanted them in power, but they were able to take it. Um, so who gave them the power to govern? They gave themselves the power to govern. That is what criminals do. That is what gangs do. I would say the very premise that the American government was founded on, like the consent of the governed, um, a people who banded, a group of people who banded together at the founding of a nation, who together agreed to support one another for the good of everyone, is that makes it night and day different. And 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 not and not that you would use this language, but to more or less agree with you. If there was a gang I had to choose, I'm going to choose the American gang over the Taliban <laughs> gang, right? Uh, the, I, I guess, I'm, I'm 100% choosing, choosing, choosing these guys. I just, you know, ha- I mean, the Constitution was an illegal overthrow of the Articles of Confederation. We talked about that. It, they literally said, you know what? This, this thing called the Articles isn't our government anymore. That, but didn't they all agree or a majority agree on it? No, Which no, no, sort no, no, of makes no. it not illegal when you agree together to change your own laws. The Constitution was a coup d'etat without violence. There because was... they agreed, though, which I think, again, is a big difference. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't think you have the popular support of the Constitution that we think it does. I think you had a slim majority in the state conventions, but I don't, I don't know. I mean, and perhaps I would agree with you that it was a majority. I'm not sure that we necessarily know, like, how slim or how big, but certainly a majority, not everyone, but I mean, that's in civil society, I would argue, that is how you change your minds and how you make new laws or come to new treaties or new agreements. I think it has to be a a majority on whatever basis you choose. Like in the Republican party, we often have two thirds majority or 75%, you know, but it is majority. So I I think it's civil. Cody, you (laughs) want to throw your hat in here before I make a fool of myself more? I'm just really confused how we're at the constitution from the Taliban. I mean, I've, we went from, <laughs> we went from Taliban cracking down on opium use despite selling opium to Murray Rothbard to the articles of confederation to the constitution. I just, I'm a little bit, I have a little bit of whiplash here. Um, I'll, 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 I'll ease. I'll, I'll give you a neck brace. The Taliban is now a government. See, actually, interestingly, they're not recognized internationally as the, official government of Afghanistan. You want to At put least, money on down on when that does happen? I, I no, will not <laughs> put money down on that. But as far as I know, as of right now, I know at the beginning of the month, they weren't recognized um, as because they're ironically or unironically or expectedly um, experienced an economic crisis. And so they can no longer, they don't have access to the foreign aid that they had before. The foreign bank account that held the aid that they currently have, which is like $10 billion. The, you know, proto Taliban government doesn't have, can't access those bank accounts and they're not recognized on the international community. Their currency has just insanely inflated and, or been debased depending on how you appropriately refer to that in the economic sense. Uh, and they can't import goods because a lot of countries don't recognize them as a formal government. So, I mean, you're going to see them crack down on drug use and that's as part of their, you know, cultural 
enforcement that we saw when the Taliban was in control of Afghanistan prior. And so it's not shocking, but they can't stop the opium trade. It's the only thing that'll bring cash into Afghanistan. And so, you know, I think you're, it's, it is this, we, we've seen the U.S. government do this in the past, not to this extent, probably not quite to this extent, definitely not to this extent. Um, Christy just watched me like come to the conclusion and is thoroughly enjoying that. But, um, you know, this idea that on its face, the Taliban government is saying, no, 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 opium use is bad. It violates our cultural laws. And then in the background is selling opium to people in order to otherwise violate their cultural laws. So I don't know if they're trying to make this distinction between like opium for them, but not for us. But I mean, it's, it's, I don't see it stopping anytime soon and seeing them crack down on it is, I mean, again, not surprising when, when you've seen their track record. Yeah. I mean, the, they're not, they're not recognized now and they may not be for some time. Right. But in, in everything but name, they are having to, no, they have to have to govern the nation. Now they, the, they've got the, they've got the, who else, right. Who else is going to fill that power vacuum except them. Right. Or some neighboring country. Um, yeah, sorry, didn't mean to take you down a, a whiplash. Of, so confusing. Of, it, my only point was they're now the government, if not de jure, they are de facto. And that just, for me, highlights and exposes that, yeah, all governments are gangs. They might be, you know, a gang might be more cruel or less cruel. They might be majority-based or not majority-based, but they're still all gangs. And this one just highlighted that very very clearly it does for me at least it highlights murray rothbard for me it may not for thee so i i think i see what you're getting and i think the question is always this idea of like legitimacy right, right? it's this all and that's probably where christy would end up and i'll speak for her until she interjects but you know the united states government is the legitimate government of the united states it was formed based on the consent of the governed States have the option of, you know, raising issues. There are provisions of the Constitution. Now, the government we have right now might not be following its constitutional bounds, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's illegitimate. It just means, in Christie's view, I would assume that it needs to be reined in. Yeah, and there's there's Correct. a big, yeah Very man. That's season two, and I've got it down. Season two. <laughs> And then whereas with the Taliban, right, I mean, there, there's no consent of the governed. There's no legitimate rule. There's no like actual participation in their society. It's just, you know, a, an armed gang that happened to take the Capitol building. One of these days, I'd love to pick your brain on if legitimacy is actually based on the consent of the majority or if legitimacy comes from force. I'd love to pick ah. your brain on that one of these days. Yeah, I mean, that's that's probably a good topic for another episode because there's I, always this question of, I mean, I don't recall consenting, but, you know. Do I have the right to consent? We'll save that for another day. But Christy, I think there's another question of legitimacy here for a topic I know is close to your heart. At least I think it is. Um, The People's Republic of China, or more commonly, the Communist Party of China, the CCP, has been very, very, very active in um, wanting Taiwan back in in the last month. We saw some... We saw the the, the British uh, carrier. I can't remember which one. I think it was like... Not Elizabeth, I can't remember. One of the monarchs uh, went through the uh, Taiwan Strait, sometimes called the South China Sea. Uh, go through it twice, and China's like, you know what? No, you can't do that. That's our waters. Uh, Taiwan belongs to us. And it even forced Biden to say, "Hey, we're going to come to Taiwan's defense if it comes to that." We've talked about this. There is a question of legitimacy of whether or not one 
is Taiwan part of China? And two, do you believe that we would come to our defense? Do you believe that Biden would have the backbone to come help Taiwan should China decide within the next two and a half years, three and a half years to take it? Yeah, I mean, I actually do. I think that is one of the few things that on the federal level, most Democrats and pretty much all Republicans actually do agree on. And I think whether Biden himself would want to do it or he would have enough advisors and pressure from the Senate and Congress around him to kind of like force him to do it and prop him up while he does it. I do believe there's no scenario under which America would not come to the defense of Taiwan. And I'm theorizing here, but not solely because we promised we would, but because our own future as a world power um, hinges on what China does with Taiwan, with that area of the world they want to claim as their own that absolutely does not belong to them, with the reach of the Communist Party into other areas of the world, with their control of that, um, you know, entire section of the world. Like, I mean, the Chinese are very industrious and they want to replace America as a world power. And that will begin in many ways with a potential takeover of Taiwan. And so I think that isn't really hinged on political um, party. It's not really hinged on a weak or a strong American president. It almost is part of what it is to be in American government is to ensure that America stays as a world power and does not let China, which in my view is a force for evil in the world, uh, take over. I will I'll also say, since you guys are um, shockingly silent, um, <laughs> in law school, I actually had a friend from Taiwan and he, his family had immigrated to the U.S., moved to California. His dad was a pastor out in um, California. And there was someone in my class who was from, from China. We actually had a lot of um, Chinese, Vietnamese, Canadians like, in my law school. It was pretty right, fun. Right, right. And um, he would not even like go talk to her. Um, oh. because just the like enmity between like you are a Chinese and identify as a Chinese and I think that China is right and I am from Taiwan and, and I know you're trying to take over my nation. It was very enlightening to me at the time. This was years and years ago. Just, I didn't realize it was so serious. And I was like, oh, you should go talk. You should go be friends. He's like, oh no, that's not how this works. Can we pause? Did you describe the foreign students in your law, law school as Taiwanese, Chinese, Vietnamese, and Canadian? Yes. Like that was Australian. The... Canadians are in fact foreigners. <laughs> I know, but Sorry, I, like Cody. How... Sorry, Cody. I like how that's the next step. It's like <laughs> all of these like East Asian countries. It's just give uh, up Korean, Japanese. <laughs> yeah. Um, look, I think this is going to get real interesting real fast. I mean, this is something that we talked about when we were talking about our foreign affairs episode is, is it the proper role of the U.S. government? And, and I you know, strongly advocated that it's not with this concern of we have been promising East Taiwan that if West Taiwan decides to invade China. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, well, you did then, not just say that. <laughs> West Taiwan. Uh, if China decides to, I'm already canceled in China for sure. I'm, I'm sure I'm ungoogleable. It's fine. So awesome. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, you know, we've we've been promising them for years and years and and administration ever, to administration. Ever since we considered the People's Republic of China as legitimate, ever since that moment of legitimacy that we granted, we've been dealing with that problem. Correct. Which and and I don't understand our stance on there is a lot of nuance in our treatment of 
China and the one China policy, which we don't recognize, but we understand. I, I don't fully understand it. Not going to pretend to. We don't. Oh, do you want to rehash it? I, I can give you the nuts and bolts. Just go for that one. Give me that like quick hit. The People's Republic of China or Communist China in the mainland, we consider to be the one China. We do not consider Taiwan to be part of the mainland China. We do not recognize the PRC's claim on Taiwan. We do not recognize Taiwan as an independent state. We do recognize it as an independent entity, but not a state. We will come to Taiwan if they are attacked. We will not help Taiwan if they aggravate China to attack them. All right. Well, there we go. I didn't remember that from our last treatment, but listen, we covered a lot, so it's okay. (laughs) But here's the thing. Look, China watched our withdrawal in Afghanistan, right? I mean, what do you think? I mean, there are... Our military leadership that oversaw that withdrawal is, I mean, at best incompetent. And to my knowledge, there have not been any resignations in that fiasco, even still. And the only two people I'm aware of being charged in the entire ordeal were two officers that called into question the competency of the leadership above them in handling that situation. Mike Milley so, is still the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. That should tell you everything you need to know about how we we, we treated that issue. So China's, if I'm in China and I'm looking at this, I'm going, look, even if they decide that they are going to stand by their word, which you, at these days, you know, I know that Christie's fairly confident on this. I don't know that you can be. I don't know that you can get real true support of both parties on this issue right now. Um, even if you do, Who's going to be in charge of the defense of Taiwan? And what is that going to look like? What's the U.S. going to commit to that defense? We didn't even commit to the defense of our own people when exiting a nation that we had been in for 20 years. Yeah. So what's that going to look like? And, you know, I can China's running military missions and running military flights over Taiwan right now. So. Look, I think it's a it's a gonna be an interesting happenstance but this does come down to the question in my view this comes down to two questions is one you know have we committed ourselves so far to taiwan that we have to stand by our word whether or not it's appropriate or not that's a that's a question i don't know that there's a good answer to and two is this the point where we have to be truly concerned about united states self-defense is this a point where it is going to result in the inevitable, you know, detriment and danger of American lives and uh, our individuals. And so those are the two questions it comes down to, to me. Um, we'll, we'll see if China flexes its muscles anymore. But I mean, I can't imagine that they're all that afraid of our you know, military leadership right now. The problem, the problem with the red lines is that once you draw them, you have to defend them. Yeah. Well, and I think one distinction to... And again, some of this is my own theorizing. I'm not like an expert on mil- what all of our military does. None of us. But are. I know there was a recent like <laughs> Wall Street Journal article that detailed some things about the United States military efforts in the Taiwan area that had previously not been super public information. And so I think that's one distinction between what we've done in Afghanistan. That was very public. It was well known. It was you know broadcast like war on terror. Of course, there were secret missions, but a lot of it was very well known. Whereas I think what we do in relation to China and Taiwan is really not as public. So how it may appear even to the general American public, I don't think is necessarily the reality of the strength of our position in that area of the world. 
Yeah. So who knows? I, you know, uh, I don't mean to be political. Um, so don't take this as political, but I'm not confident in president Biden to lead in that kind of crisis. Um, do you guys see the town hall he was in? Oh, it was so bad. embarrassing. And, and I, and I, I ended up feeling just bad for the man. I just felt bad for him. Like, you know, I'm glad the Democrats are making a fool of themselves. Don't get me wrong, <laughs> but I was, it was, yeah. it was sad to watch. And I, I had pity. I had, I had sympathy and it made me very nervous. I'm like, mm, yeah, don't, don't trust that that's going to be a good management of crisis. Don't trust that Kamala is going to be able to do anything about that. And I really dislike the joint chiefs right now. So I'm like, mm, I don't feel good about this situation. I mean, that's my thing. Like I can get that people are, you know, that Republicans are excited that, and Stan, I'm not calling you a Republican, but that Republicans are getting excited that Democrats are making fools of themselves. I can understand that, but I, I, listen, I used to be a Republican. I was, I, and to this day, I am happy when the Democrats make a fool of themselves. And I'm sad when Republicans make a fool of themselves. I got so sad that Republicans made a fool of themselves that I left the Republican party. <laughs> I am here with Chrissy hoping like, Chrissy, give me something. Give me something. No, Chrissy, I think his sympathies are still there. I think you can convert him back. He can be like saved. Maybe, maybe I'm a chance. <laughs> she could. I was, I was very, I was very much a Ron Paul. Uh, I, I, you know, yeah. Yeah. Go on. Go um, on. But I mean, look, like that's terrifying. The idea that they're like our commander in chief isn't may not be fit to be commander in chief. If we get involved in a military conflict with China, I mean, if China is, advances to actual aggression ver- against Taiwan, I mean, it's it's October of 2021, right? So, I mean, unless Biden is going to be deemed unfit for office under a particular amendment, right, he's going to be in office till at least 2024. And there are legitimate questions on whether he is able to conduct himself as commander in chief. He's not even a year into office. Oh my God. Like, and we have military commanders that directly answer to him that directly demonstrated that their, their inability to even exit from a country efficiently and have, have demonstrated, had, I mean, we talked about this in our previous episode, right? Went around the commander in chief's back previously in order to have communications with other foreign countries, like, and they're still holding their jobs i mean i can understand the perspective of yeah like it's good that they're making a fool of themselves like let them reap what they sow but we're all gonna reap what they sow we all we all suffer the consequences right and that's what that's the thing that scares me is if china decides to advance aggressions in two months what are we gonna do and what is that gonna look like and that is what is truly kind of terrifying yeah. I mean, I think obviously we all agree that when the Constitution like divided three branches of power, everyone's supposed to stay in their own box and be a check and a balance. And that's good. But I think this is one of the few scenarios where it might actually end up being OK that not every branch does stay in their box right now in the United States, because you have enough strong leaders from both parties. And I'm like hardcore Republican, as everyone knows but national security should be an American issue, not a party issue. And so you see people in the Senate and the House who absolutely have the connections and the influence to make sure that the right things are done if Biden can't pull it off. Yeah. I, I mean, am like quite confident of that, actually. There used to be a tradition that parties ended at the coastlines. Yes. I, so. Exactly. Okay. 
So that's those are our aspiring autocrats, the Taliban and the communists in China. Um, let's go on to the next. I mean, I know that it, the title's aspiring autocrats, but I'd, I don't know that the Chinese are aspiring anymore. They're aspiring to be autocrats over Taiwan. Oh, okay. Never mind. I'll, I'll allow it. I got you. I got you. All right. <laughs> next counselor. up, ABCs. We got B for BS bureaucracy, those stupid and asinine rules and rulers from your friendly neighborhood regulator. Um, the one that I have for October was the crap stain that is our current supply chain problems. Um, we have shipyards full of shipping containers. We have a severe shortage of truckers to move goods across this country. Uh, it feels like a it feels like an, a, a nightmare when it, you know. It, it, well, um, I can't stand Iran. I can't stand Atlas Shrugged, but this feels like the whole uh, shortage problem that she mentions to a greater degree in, in her book. And I'm like, uh, this is not good. And what what I really really dislike about this um, this problem is that this is entirely avoidable. This supply chain problem is entirely avoidable and is almost 100% the result of government interference. Um, feel free to disagree with me. Feel free to say that this is why we should build an America and so on. So I had, I had a couple of friends who were all about, we need to diversify our supply chain. We need to have more things built in America, more local stuff, Mike. Yeah, sure. Okay, diversify or change, but this is not why this happens. Amazon sources from all over the world. Our problem is not a diversity of where we get our stuff from. This is a problem of government getting in the way. But feel free to back to to, no, to say what you want. No, I'm 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 dead on with you here, Stanton. I mean, this is not a question of like, do we need this? Should not be a question of should we be manufacturing more in the United States or out of the United States? That's an t- entirely different question, and that's a question that the market, if allowed to answer, will answer. And if anything was going to help it answer that question, it was losing access or multiple international communities shutting down. And so the things that people are recognizing that they want made locally are now buying those things locally. And you're going to see that continue to to respond. This supply chain shortage is nothing more than insane. Well, first there's a diminished workforce, which we can all recognize, which is caused by, I don't know, maybe government regulation that continued to pay individuals for not working potentially, and other incentives, right? There were other reasons that people haven't gone back to to a lot of works, but we're seeing record unemployment, so that doesn't help. Um, But basically the the problem, and I've done a fairly deep dive into this, so I'm going to try and stay like a little surface level, get it for surface level. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Sorry, I'll do my PV Herman laugh every time. So essentially the problem is uh, the bottleneck is empty containers. And so container ships come in, those containers are offloaded into a port. From the port, they're loaded onto a truck that can take a container. That truck drives it off, delivers it to its destination, returns with the empty container. That container is then returned, put back on a ship and shipped back. So that's kind of the process. Oftentimes, because there's a little bit of a feedback loop, empty containers have to be stored. So there's a certain number of lots around these ports, like in Long Beach, which is one of the biggest ones. This is the LA port, essentially, right? Um, where they'll store empty containers. But there are intense government regulations on the storage of containers, how many can be stored, how high they can be stored, where they can be stored, what facilities are allowed to accept them, what facilities aren't allowed to accept them. Good God. And, 
And so essentially what you have is you have these like storage lots near the Long Beach port where they're only, they only have a certain amount of area because they're zoned within these bounds and the property that they own. And you can only stack containers too high. And that's by local zoning regulation. And so it makes it to where they can't do anything with those containers. Well, the problem is because everything is piling up, there's trucks that have empty containers sitting on the trailers and they can't store them in the lot and they can't return them to the ships because the ships are trying to unload full containers and there's nothing to load back onto. And so you're getting this constant feedback loop that is all perpetuated around essentially the storage of empty containers and this issue of where they're delivering the products to, right? So they're kind of trying to shoot and store stuff off in like Texas instead of finding facilities that are nearby that they can store in because of transportation, government regulation, and zoning laws. So this is all this is all framed as like, I mean, the sides are framing it differently, but this really comes, I, I mean, unironically, like shouldn't come to anybody's surprise that this comes down to some like basically some stupid local zoning ordinance. I was unaware of that, I, but Chris, do you have any thoughts? I mean, yeah, I think I agree that whether or not things should be manufactured in the United States and whether that would have an influence on this, and I would say it could, um, is a separate issue. Like, I do think that huge issues, everything both of you have just said, the government regulations, and that are such giant bears to edit or remove or, uh, you know, put a temporary stay on or all these things that, I mean, here, here's my thought. Our transportation secretary, and I know we did a whole podcast on specific uh, potential cabinet members before they were confirmed, but our transportation secretary, who's Pete Buttigieg, like he should have made it his job when this was happening to step in and find an emergency solution, even if this is based in local zoning laws, which Cody, that's a very interesting explanation. Um, And I totally buy it because California zoning is terrible, but if you are the national secretary of transportation and this is the problem that is having repercussions across the entire nation, maybe, maybe it should be your job to figure out how to solve it and how to work with the local government to find a solution that really isn't that difficult when you dive deep into it. So like, that's a problem I have, not only if these local zoning ordinances are causing it, but the person at the t- arguably at the top who could have stepped in and made some deals and negotiated and suggested some solutions was off on an unannounced leave while the country was um, experiencing and continues to experience all the repercussions from this. I mean, look, if there's any proper role of the federal government related to transportation, like, I mean, transportation ports is somebody's strongest argument. Yeah. Yes. I mean, allowing access to and controlling the ports has got to be your strongest argument in favor of the federal government for control. I mean, importation of goods, right? Because Mm -hmm. how do you get something into Oklahoma? Um, And so like, I feel like this has got to be a fairly straightforward question. Nobody's going to really push back on this one. And yet just, just no response, just the response actually that's not fair there is a response which actually makes it more offensive because the response is like maybe you shouldn't have such high expectations for thanksgiving and (laughs) men you're gonna have to start christmas shopping in october like everybody else like it's all these super gross like talking down to us of yes well maybe you should just expect less like you've been privileged for so long maybe you'll understand what it's like and it's like do you guys read the babylon Bee? 
the, yes. the satire site. Oh, one of my favorites. One, one of my favorites uh, from on this issue. Um, what what's the set press secretary's name? Jen Pasaki. Yeah, Jen Saki. Uh-huh. What? Well, how do you pronounce it? Saki, like a silent P. That's dumb. Okay, Saki. Um, it's like uh, Jen Saki says that inflation's not. Uh, that we don't have to worry about inflation because there are no goods on the shelves to buy anyway. <laughs> because and I'm like oh well that's not satire that's unfortunately true that's pretty much what it is yeah no it's and they the- do they make it sound like oh hey you're just high class if you think groceries should stay at the same price like they, they literally are acting like average american families who want to be able to buy normal food for their families but gas in their car um you just are all rich and have high class expectations like what's your problem do we all remember I mean, this seems like it was 15 years ago at this point, but right before the 4th of July, when the Biden administration came out and said, like, don't worry, this is going to be a cheaper 4th of July than last year. Hot dogs are 16 cents less. You're going to save 16 cents on your average 4th of July cookout. And they were so excited. They made that like fancy Instagram infographic that they just like promoted and plastered all over every social media site. And so when it was like 16 cents less on the 4th of July, they were stoked. And now that not only is it going to be the most Thanksgiving, most expensive Thanksgiving ever, but you might not be able to have your traditional Thanksgiving. Now it's like, oh, you're just privileged for wanting the same things. Like, it's just so, so. And if we ever held anybody accountable anymore, it would be Uh, so obvious. But it's just so like facially absurd. What baffles me about this problem is that it is it is the result of of a bureaucrat saying, um, okay, you can't work, or if you want to work, you have to have these XYZ protocols because of COVID. Um, you know what? If you don't want to work, that's fine. We're gonna pay you not to. And then people come around and say, Well, if they want, if you want your employees to work for you, you have to pay them more. Like, I can't compete with a government handout. So get, no, that's not how that works. These are government-created problems that spawn a government desire to create a solution to it that only ever increases government authority over the matter in the first place. And that increased government authority only creates more rules, which creates more problems, which creates this feedback loop. I like how you said that, Cody. Creates a feedback loop of basically the Sovietization of our importation of goods. And it's it's atrociously, disgustingly, blatantly terrifying. And and this is a problem that's going to get, it's not going to follow in a linear problem, right? This is going to get exponentially worse. Mm -hmm. And you're going to be dealing with ever increasing demand, especially given that it's just about, or it's, you know, now in November. And so these are going to be problems that are just going to exponentially increase. And what, look, you're going to have, you know, toilet paper 2.0. Right. People are going to start seeing empty shelves. They're going to start buying and snatching things up again. And you're going to have this run on a good that's probably not necessary, but inevitably the market is going to create some. Well, not even the market. Let me rephrase. Government is going to create a form of panic that's going to influence the market. And you're just going to see it. It's another feedback loop pushed into the market side of this. Not to be a super economic nerd, but for no, this is what happens when you have a government that runs on Keynesian economics. Demand, 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 but you never do anything to protect the suppliers. And this is what happens when you don't protect suppliers, or rather, when you interfere so much that you so protect 
laborers and you so protect consumers, but you do nothing but harm those who are actually making our stuff. This is what happens. So welcome to a second, uh, second world problem. Yeah. I'll tell you what, I already bought my girlfriend's Christmas gifts. So I got Yeah. I got I got to go in and buy, buy Anna's stuff. So I got, I got birthday and Christmas done. So we're, we're locked in for the year. It's impressive. I am not even that far ahead and I am usually ahead. Yeah. You, uh, yeah. You're a mom too. You, you have like multiple heads to worry about. I, I just have really, really more one. I know. I'm like, maybe I, we're going to have a handmade Christmas this year if I don't hurry up. <laughs> and I will admit I am the stereotype. I am very much the like, well, I'm flying home tomorrow. So I better go shopping and find some things today. <laughs> Breaking tradition though. Good job. Yeah. Look at me go. I listened. It's the one time I listened to the, uh, the pundits on whatever news channel. Yeah, no joke. All right. So we have our aspiring autocrats, our BS bureaucracy. Let's do our last one. Our corrupt cronies, the worst of both worlds, both the corporate and the government. Um, I'm going to hand this one off to Cody because I'm not entirely familiar with it. Um, But Facebook got its teeth kicked in this month on a couple different levels. Um, Testimony in front of Congress, uh, leaked information, uh, internal reports, uh, yeah, Cody, want to hand, hand this one off? I don't know a whole lot about this. Chris, you might do too. I know you have a, a particular knack for digging into tech uh, tech companies, but if not, Cody, go for it. I uh, I wish that Facebook got their their teeth kicked in, but I it just ever so much feels like what we watched was this like fake stage school school bully fight, so that like somebody can impress their crush. And then like take them to senior prom like that feels like what happened <laughs> like that is 100 what this congressional testimony feels like so so francis hagan is a, a was a former facebook employee who is now the the whistleblower that testified in front of congress and so as the topic has been of late right so everybody's been chatting about facebook censorship right so you would think somebody came up and said hey look facebook's been censoring a bunch of people it's really inappropriate they're doing this on a like discriminatory bias So Congress, you need to to step in and you would be very wrong, Stanton, because what Frances Hagen, I think is how you say her name, came in and said is Facebook is looking the other way when it's profitable and not censoring enough. And their (laughs) lack of censorship is incredibly dangerous. And Congress, their discriminatory lack of censorship needs to be addressed by further congressional regulation. We are, Facebook's a threat to democracy. They need to be censoring more of their users and they're not. And it's creating false information, fake news, and they're just fueling bad things. Is that sound what, what it was? Yeah, I mean, you okay. could be whistleblower 2.0. Are you, are you testifying tomorrow? Because that, that, you're dead on. <laughs> you, bet, you, bet, you better believe it, I am. So it's this like, crazy feels like just a straight setup, right? Facebook has been pushing for more and more regulation for years. We talked about this when we did our big tech episode, right? Like I I even trotted out the ad that they had put out that Facebook had put out that said the last time that, you know, government regulated big tech, we would have had to have faxed this ad to you. So Facebook has been pushing for more and more and more and more regulation. And then there's a whistleblower that comes in and says, Hey, they're not doing enough. You need to regulate them more. And so she had all these sorts of claims. And I, you know, I don't know the veracity of any of them. Obviously, I do not work at Facebook, nor do I have any insiders personally at Facebook. If I did, I would let you know. 
Um, but she basically says that they're putting profit before people was one of the quotes and basically oh, saying that, God. you know, they don't care necessarily about protecting individuals. They just will, they'll look the other way and not censor when it's profitable for them. She kind of focuses on this like startup culture that they, they keep hanging on to. Um, and it's, a she calls it like the startup ethic that's, uh, irresponsible and, you can like, it's just all this like mess of internal reporting. And there is some really interesting statements. There were a couple of the, 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 the politicians that were interviewing her were, were talking about like, well, did you release the full report? Is this everything? Where else does this come from? Where's this report? And it felt, and there was no good answer to that. So it felt like not only was the leak of the documents internal that supported her claims, uh, it felt very selective, but she also ate to game at Zuckerberg and. Ooh, interesting. Yeah. And, and the senior leadership and basically said that like Zuckerberg started as CEO when he's, when he was 19 and he's been CEO ever since. And that a lot of the VPs or directors, uh, it's the only job that they've ever had. So taking a lot of aim at Facebook leadership, which. Seems personal and vendetta like. Well, and also seems like a question of, are they said, is this setting up some form of, of more hostile takeover of Facebook leadership in order to oust board members and to oust Zuckerberg? And so he was a fairly clear target of, of this. Um, and so I just, it's just, of course, the Facebook, the, the big tech whistleblower that you get is the whistleblower that goes, yeah, more censorship, not less. Bloody hell. Hmm. No, it's very interesting. I um, haven't looked into it a ton. I mean, I know there's like the Facebook papers out there that are like, what, over 10,000 pages. Yeah. I think of what's interesting to me is that so much of it is internal research that Facebook itself had done and knew about the effects their platform was having. Like, I think it was. It was their Instagram one. Yeah, I, I did see that. Yeah. That, that, that the that Instagram and its algorithms uh really are psychologically damaging to particularly to young girls and for yes. any parent out there that pays attention and knows anything is like, well, duh, but, well, this, right. but Facebook I now has a year old daughter. It's, I mean, she's not really into that stuff yet, but in the near future, I'm sure she would be. And I think it was like over 13% of teen girls said being on Instagram made like their thoughts of suicide worse. And I think it was 17% said it aggravated like anorexia and other conditions like that. And it's like Facebook and Instagram, like the company, they know that. And yet they allow teens on the platform, like minors on the platform. And so, and here's the thing, it, whether or not we want to talk about what levels private companies should or shouldn't be allowed to do the point, in my view, the point of a lot of this internal research, including showing that Facebook knew about human trafficking on their platform since 2018, at least, and hasn't done much to curb it or hasn't you know, invested the time and money to find a way to put an end to that while they spend their time and effort and money finding ways to, to um, clamp down on election messages they don't like and putting guidelines in place to limit political speech or discussions on COVID vaccines. But hey, are we going to limit teens' use of our platform that actually puts them at risk of dying if that's what we're concerned about, if people dying? Well, teen suicide doesn't matter, but COVID does. Like, I find that to be disturbing regardless of what the answer on how to deal with it is. Well, and so one of the things that came out in the report is not 
not only did Facebook acknowledge that there was potentially some, some effect on psyche um, and, and mental health issues, but they're also at the same time specifically targeting the teen market and their spending to attract those people to the platform was higher than in any previous instance because they're noticing that they're getting a significant uh, age drop off at that wow. teen rate. Because what they're finding is there's this, I think they called it like aging up, where there's a lot of people that used Facebook when they were preteens and teens that stay on Facebook. There's a lot of people that, same thing for Instagram, but they're not capturing the new teen market because those people are going to different services, predominantly like Twitter. Um, um. Most teachers know that their students are not on Facebook. They're probably not on Twitter. They're most likely either going to be Instagram, which is fading off right now. And they're on TikTok. Everybody's on TikTok um, or they're on like Twitch. They're on whatever extra, you know, newer platforms. Discord is getting really popular. So there's all these newer platforms and those people aren't going they're definitely not going to Facebook and most of them are not going to Instagram. And so not only did they, did they recognize this potentially detrimental effect that they were having on teens, then they were like, Oh, well, we also need to get more teens onto our platform because we're losing in that market point. The whole, the, the a function on Instagram called reels, they imported into Facebook reels was developed as a direct competitor to the TikTok success of these short, short video clips and TikTok in and of itself is just the Chinese state version of Vine, which was a really successful platform too. Um, but it, all of it is driven. I mean, today, especially with, with Facebook's uh, uh, software engineers, it's all oriented towards engagement, right? Getting people to stay on and keep going. Um, and that's, and that's, you know, that's where the call for more regulation comes from. Yeah. And and one of the interesting things that popped up in the accusations against Facebook was that one of the reasons why they they allow or that there are, you know, terrorist threats on the platform isn't just the stuff that we're seeing in the United States of like the way that people are being referred to as domestic terrorists completely changing. But one of the specific um, uh, accusations, if you will, that came out of the papers was that it's actually partly an interpreter problem. And so that they don't have the interpretive abilities to actually see and and scan the posts from a lot of different countries that use languages that Facebook isn't familiar with. And because of that, they can't moderate the content that's in those. And so they're completely unable to even know whether or not those are violating legal problems. So it's this, it's it's a, a much broader charge focused on this idea of, they don't have the capability and they're interested in getting in that capability. And you know, who's going to help them do it? Oh, uh, by golly, the federal government of the uh, United States government regulator at the department. Yeah, no, whatever. All right. Any last comments on, on our corrupt cronies at Facebook? I just like here, here's the great thing about this leak. And Christy, I will happily uh, offer an answer for who should deal with this problem. People are mad and people are pissed that Facebook is doing this and that what's happening with Instagram, what's happening with these things. And they are losing users. They lost market share for like the first time in a long time. They're losing more daily active users than they had before. They're also losing a lot of people that had multiple accounts. That was one thing that came out that like uh, they have a term for it, but single, single user, multiple accounts, something like that. 
this is they're seeing a a response from this and so if this was being more heavily at like circulated you might see an even better response but so there is a direct market effect on uh, on this information coming out and being made available to the public yeah that, that's good no i i agree i think one of our biggest problems with a lot of I don't know, issues that are detrimental to people that government like either gets involved in or whatever is the media never covers it when they don't want to. Like, I know that's a really separate issue, but people, the market would respond in so many appropriate ways, except that people don't know and they're not told and they have to dig to find it. And do I think people should perhaps be a little more diligent to go dig and find things? Yes, I do. But when the media talks about whatever in the world they want to, but not things that would be highly relevant to people's lives, um, which is also why I think the government should break them up as monopolies. But, uh, you know, that's a whole different topic, too. <laughs> I would love to debate you on the Sherman Antitrust Acts. I would love that. Right. But we are, we are approaching our hour. We have a couple more things. So we have our ABCs. Okay. We have a we have two more stories we want, to, we want to talk about that we couldn't quite fit into our um, our nice, neat little categories. Uh, this month, it's, it's D for duress. D, yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. How, how about D, uh, D for death and then E for executive functioning problems? Well, D for death works for both of these. Oh, that's sad. That's sad. Okay, let's start with the... Okay, I'm just gonna leave that alone. Thanks, Cody. That's just a bang. All right, popping like a bubble. Um, this month, actor and executive producer of the film Rust, Alec Baldwin, um, accidentally shot and killed a member of the crew and injured another with a um, with a prop gun. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Hollywood during filming of scenes with firearms uh, typically uses actual firearms and they fire blanks. Uh, to create a more genuine cinematic experience. And we don't have all the details. They're coming out and they we may never have them fully until the criminal uh, or until the investigation is over. But either the blank itself and some freak accident caused some serious damage that is quite unusual or what's probably more likely, and I'll let Cody here take a gander here, is that the weapon was loaded with li- live ammunition. Um, and this is... A problem because in either event, the armorer or the crew member responsible for weapon management and safety probably screwed up here. And Alec Baldwin himself also probably made some mistakes as well. Cody, you're, you know, both of you are are, are probably very proficient in gun safety and gun understanding, but Cody, he's our, he's our, he's our gun man. So Cody, I'm going to hand this one off to you again. And then I want to hear how, how, what, what, what you, what you think about this. Yeah. And, and this is a, I mean, this is an insane scenario. And, uh, you know, he said he he accidentally and, and a, a court is probably going to have to take a look at this and determine whether or not this is going to be ruled accidental or negligent or what. But um, so the facts as I as they've come out and as I understand them is it's it's highly unlikely that this was a blank. You, you know, you can't say for certain, but basically the way that a blank works is it's kind of like a um, if you're familiar with a, a, a round for a firearm. There's, you know, a cartridge a bullet for you plebeians. Yeah. yeah. So no. So there's a casing that holds the bullet. The bullet is the projectile itself. And then that's loaded with powder. And there's a primer in the end. The hammer or the striker of your firearm hits the primer. 
which ignites the powder, which expels the bullet by means of pressure out the end of the barrel. And then the casing is ejected out of the side of the firearm, either automatically or using a manipulation of the firearm, like in a, a like a pump shotgun, let's say. A little bit different because it's a shell, but you get the point. Mm-hmm. Bolt action rifle. There we go. Uh, so basically, uh, blanks don't have a bullet. It's uh, all the other pieces and no bullet so that it keeps anything from firing out the end of the barrel. Um, the details that have come out is that basically this firearm uh, appears to have been used during off hours for fun target shooting. Oh, uh, I heard this at the site. This is new, I think, as of like within the past day or so. Um, and there was mixed ammunition in the arm in the area for the armorer, as well as in some bags, so that there was a mixed blanks and live ammo. Um, couple things for anybody that's ever worked with a firearm operated on a firearm it is a no-no to keep live ammo with any non-live ammo so if you're using snap caps with like training rounds if you're using paint rounds if you're using blanks everybody knows you put all of your live live ammo away in an unaccessible or like not easily accessible area and then you pull out training rounds then you pull out something else so that you never ever ever mix ammo that's step number one, right? That's that's the basic level here. So if this was a live round in this firearm, the armorer absolutely, you know, did some. Whoever prepared that rifle mixed ammo up. And that's one of the main rules of gun safety is just, that's huge. Second, I, and this might be a personal opinion. Some people might have different views. Some people have come out and said, look, you guys don't understand how Hollywood works. Actors aren't allowed to touch the guns. They have to rely on the armorer. And we'll see. We'll see what happens here. We'll see the stories come out. They'll have expert witnesses, I'm sure, if this goes to trial. I would never, ever, ever take any job in the world that required me to point a functional firearm at another human being and pull the trigger without clearing that firearm myself. I do not care if I'm a multi-million dollar. I don't know how much Baldwin's making these days. I'm assuming we're in the millions still. Maybe not. I don't care how much you're paying me. I, I would not take a job that required me to point a firearm at another individual that I didn't have the opportunity to clear that I am worried about, that I'm not actively trying to kill, right? If you're in a military situation, there's a difference between pointing a firearm at somebody. But in, in a situation like this, so it sounds like what potentially happened is that he was pointing the firearm at the camera uh, and the director of photography was standing behind the camera he pulled the trigger a live round. It seems like sounds like was fired, killed the director of photography, wounded the director of the production. And so, I mean, we'll see what comes out. Here's, here's the problem, right? So from one of the many problems also is no sooner than this happened, did gun control organizations jump on this and say like, we need to get guns out of Hollywood. This is why we need more gun control. No, this is why people need to learn firearm safety. If, and follow their protocols. Like Hollywood, for for whatever you know, craziness that comes out of that place, they have these protocols for very, very specific reasons. Like, uh, you know, I, I direct theater and we, you know, we have to do, you know, we obviously don't use real firearms at our school, but we have fights. You know, we have stage fights and we practice that. We talk about combat safety and Hollywood has these protocols. The state of California has laws around these issues so you know 
the, the, the armorer is 100% going to be at fault. And, and uh, I was looking into that a little bit and they're not, they're not going to be in a good place, but Baldwin, he's no Keanu Reeves. Keanu Reeves trains constantly with really, really big and, and complex weaponry. And I don't think Baldwin has, and he, he did not understand how to, how to check his weapon, check his magazine, check, check the chamber. This is not, this is, this is not a fault of rules and regulations. This is a fault of not following the, the, the common sense standards that are born from the gun community. There are plenty, plenty of, like you said, Stan, there's plenty of rules and regulations that surrounded this instance and they didn't save this person's life. And no one, I mean, aside from your right to do so, no one in this country should be touching a functional firearm without understanding the basic safety elements of that firearm. Anytime I've ever taken anybody else for their first shoot, right? You walk them through at home with the firearm unloaded so that they get comfortable with the weapons manipulation. They understand the basic rules of firearm safety. And, you know, Alec Baldwin has been a gun control advocate. He's advocated against firearms in public. He's fine using them in his movies. He's fine using a live rifle in the filming of his movies, but we of course can't have them to defend our own lives. And look, there's going to be some real legal questions that come out here. And I think it's, it's probably going to come down to a battle of, you know, this, this interplay between armorers and actors, but at the end of the day, you got to know the basic rules of fire safety. And there is zero chance you're getting me to point a live rifle without checking it at something I'm not willing to destroy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what I think will be interesting, I guess, in figuring out whether or not they criminally charge anyone is regardless of the rules that typically are applied to people in charge of the armory versus actors could a DA and the law come in and say, well, regardless of the rules you think you're bound by, um, this is negligent manslaughter because I don't care what rules you think you want to follow. You can't pick up a dangerous weapon that any person knows could be dangerous and use it in this way with, and it's negligent of you as a person who is holding it and firing it to not check. I don't know if that's a conclusion they'll come to or not, but I think it's absolutely a possibility that they almost partially set aside rules that may, you know, Hollywood may follow, but wouldn't be followed in any other normal circumstance of life. It's like, why should they get a special exception just because they're Hollywood? Um, I guess we'll see. It's, it's, it's tragic nevertheless for those yes. families who died. Um, there is a, a, another major public death. Um, Colin Powell died this month. Uh, Colin Powell was President George W. Bush's first Secretary of State. He's also a former general on the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Um, though he was a public team player and supporter of the invasion of Iraq, he is often credited with being one of the uh, dissenting voices on the invasion within the Bush-Cheney administration. Um, the media will say that he died of COVID. He died of cancer complicated by COVID. Um, so that's a, that's a major, uh, that's a major figure in a lot of circles, uh, passing away this month. So, um, I don't know if you guys have anything to say on Colin Powell. I don't really have any strong opinions, but, um, sad day for the Powell family. I will add, uh, one more unfortunate death. Uh, as many of you know, Cody, Chris, and I, we are alums of the leadership program of the Rockies and the LPR wider community 
uh, lost uh, DK Williams. Uh, he, he's a fellow alum. And it's a very, very sad moment. DK had a, had a big influence on the LPR community. He had a very large, um, he, had a, he had a large impact. Uh, I didn't know him personally well myself. I don't know if Cody, Cody Christen did, but no, I, I know the, I know those who were close to him and, and it's a sad loss. So you know, to the Williams family and all those who loved him and were loved by him, uh, our hearts and our, our prayers are out for you. So uh, sorry to end the, uh, end our, and our in the news for October on three deaths, three kind of unfortunate stories, but you know, that's, that's, that's the way it sometimes goes, unfortunately. Um, Cody Christie, how many shout outs? Man, it's such a somber note to end this on. I know. Um, give, me, I, give me something happy to lean on. Yeah. So I will, uh, I will shout out to, uh, to my boss actually, who, uh, I assume, uh, listens to the podcast out of pure listening pleasure to it <laughs> because she just thoroughly loves, uh, everything we do and talk about and definitely not to make sure I say, I don't say anything that she has to be aware of uh-huh, uh-huh. at the office the next day. I'm sure it is just a former, but, um, not only has she uh, diligently listened to just about every episode, as far as I'm aware, uh, after listening to our FBI deep dive, she uh, she texted me a long string uh, late, like on a Thursday evening or something, um, with some additional information and some interesting takes uh, about FBI funding of state programs that already exists and uh, things that we weren't necessarily aware of in the podcast. So. I uh, thank you, Kristen, very much for not only listening, but also uh, helping inform us as to some of the things that we weren't necessarily aware of, which in my argument made the FBI even worse. So we, it we may have me a lot. We may have <laughs> to do a kind of a, an update episode on a couple of things. I love that. Awesome. Yeah, I want to see this list. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I will make sure that you guys get access to it as well. Thank you. Thank you. Christian, any shout outs? I'll do my dad um, because speaking of gun safety, as we did towards the end of this um, episode, he is amazing at teaching people gun safety and is the one who's taught me how to shoot a pistol, shoot a shotgun, but always, 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 he takes, I would say almost like overtime uh, to make sure you're safe and you know how to handle it and goes over the rules over and over. And I mean, it is extremely valuable. So love you, dad. Alec Baldwin needed a, a Papa Burton. He did. I did. Um, I will shout out my grandmother. She is a, a technophobe. She does not particularly care, but she does have her uh, she does have her iPad and she loves it dearly. She uses it for a lot of things, you know, like looking at photos of kids and grandkids. Um, but she has recently been uh, su- subscribed to our podcast, so I'm sure she's listening. I have advised her to skip a couple episodes out of uh, my respect for her amazing patriotism. So, uh, Chrissy, you will love my grandmother. She's the type Ooh. of woman that was a real, she, so she, she's the most Catholic woman you'll ever meet. Okay. So put that out there. She was a Republican during the Kennedy years. Okay. Wow. Yeah. If that tells you anything, when, when, Catholic, when Catholics had a picture of the, of Kennedy and the Pope on their, on their bedstand, she did not. So she's been a Republican through and through. So she, she is a, a, a a very red meat person is there That's an implication amazing. that i wouldn't also love your grandmother i mean i feel like oh no you would just for very different reasons <laughs> <laughs> just for very different reasons <laughs> all right all right ladies and gentlemen we have had a hell of a month for october 
Um, once again, happy Halloween uh, for all those who decide to celebrate. Um, our next episode is going to be our deep dive. We're not sure what it's going to be on, uh, but you can bet your bottom dollar that's going to be self-evident and probably forgotten. You can find us on all the social medias, including the infamous Facebook and Twitter and Instagram at SEF underscore pod. You can listen to us wherever you find your podcasts, Spotify, Apple, and elsewhere. Uh, With that, ladies and gentlemen, we will see you next time. Bye.